You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? That's good. Well, we are glad that you're here. Happy New Year. And if you're not aware, uh, this was a big week for us. My youngest daughter, Olivia, turned 10 this week. So that was a big, that was a big thing. We did a lot of celebrating. Uh, we threw a party, got some presents. The most exciting present for her being that we bought her a putting green, uh, like this little mini putting green. My, my daughter uh, takes mini golf very seriously. And so anyway, we bought her this, uh, this little putting green. And uh, so now she really wants to create the full experience. So I'm building a windmill in our living room to really make it authentic. But, uh, you know, in all, in all the excitement, I realized this later, that I had forgotten to buy her a birthday card, which is kind of a big deal in our house because of the epic birthday cards that I buy. Now, you say, is it really that big of a deal? You somebody's birthday, you buy them a birthday card. First of all, don't ever do that. That's lame. So two years ago, uh, I'll tell you this story. Two years ago, when it was my wife's birthday, uh, we did a bunch of celebrating, all this stuff planned, and then her birthday was on a Sunday. So after church, we were driving home because we were throwing her a party, and then I had to stop at Walgreens because I had forgotten to buy her a card. And so I bought her one from me and then one from the kids, and I didn't have a lot of time to look at the one from the kids, so I just kind of grabbed something and went. So I'm looking at it on the way home, and I realized that I had bought her a card that is a talking hot dog. And you just press it, and every time you press it, it would say 10 different phrases. And so, you know, it would be like, you're the worst. And they were all hot dog puns. Uh, you know, um, nice to meet you and uh, party your buns off. And I was like, I mean, what my luck. This was amazing. It was like the best card. Uh, my girls, unfortunately, were not as happy with my selection. So much so, they refused to sign the card. And I said to them, there's no time. This party is starting right now. Sign the card. Absolutely not. And uh, so much so, my, my daughter, Livy, well, the, they said no. And then they said, Dad, you always do this. Remember last year when you gave Mom a first communion card for her birthday? And I said, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And that was pretty hilarious. And uh, because, listen, if you get a birthday, it's like, you know, hey, happy birthday. Like, you'll rem- you're not going to remember that. Somebody gives you a first communion card for your birthday, you're going to remember that. Uh, I have a friend who turned 45 a couple weeks ago. I bought him happy 100th uh, birthday card. And then I just put a little asterisk. And then underneath it, I wrote valid for the next 55 years. So now I'm good. I don't have to buy him a card again for at least until he turns 101. Uh, my niece's birthday was last month. I bought her a bar mitzvah card. And it said, you're the man. So I just got my Sharpie, added the W-O. Now it says, you're the woman. And, uh, and that was that. I mean, it was, it was great. And, but honestly, part of the reason I do that is I have a general problem with the card industry. I believe all cards should be blank on the inside so you can write whatever it is that you want. Uh, instead, we're all looking around trying to find the perfect card. And it's like, you don't know me, you don't know my wife or my family, and yet I'm waiting for some stranger to write the perfect thing. You know, it's like you open the card, from the moment I first saw you, I knew we would be together forever. Like, give me a break. First time I met my wife, I lied several times to impress her. 
And it doesn't matter how many stores I go to, I'm never going to find a card to address the specificities of when we met. And so anyway, back to the thing, Livy ended up making her own card for her mom on her birthday. And then because she didn't want her mom thinking that she cheaped out, she put a dollar in there uh, just to be like, look, I was willing to spend money on a card. And then Mia wrote something nice. And uh, Xander, thankfully, just signed the hot dog card, still talks about it to this day. Uh, every once in a while, he'll just bust down and go, Dad, you're the worst. And I'll be like, thank you very much. Same to you. And, uh, and, and my, my point is this, and, and once again, you know this, is that family is complicated. And it's supposed to be. Because family is the place where God changes us. Family is the place where God develops us. And family is the place where God prepares us for life. That's why of the many metaphors that the Bible gives when it comes to the church, the most common one is family. It's that is that we're in relationship with each other because we have the same heavenly father who's working on us, who's working in us, and who's changing us. And when we think of change, especially now, at the beginning of a new year, we'll think in terms of stuff that we need to do differently. And that's part of it. But there's also the part of change that's dependent on who it is that you're doing life with. Because change, and you've realized this more than likely, if you're you know, older than like 20 minutes old, is that change happens because of the environments that we're in the friendships that we embrace, and the things that we let go of. And that's why uh, for someone who doesn't get it, I don't know if you ever invite someone to church and they're like, I don't know, what do you guys do there at church? We're like, well, you know, we sing some songs and then pastor come up and then gives the message and like, all right, what else? Well, that's, that's about it. It's like, okay, but what, really that's, that's, what in the world is that going to do? And once again, they, they don't get it because they don't realize that when we, sing, what we're doing is we're recognizing who God is. We're recognizing that we're his. We're recognizing that part of what happens when I sing and when I worship is that it prepares the soil of my heart for the seed of the word that's going to go in. And that when someone's talking, it's not just someone talking, but we are explaining and delving into the very words that God has given to us. And when we do that, listen, and we embrace it, things begin to change. And then most importantly, because we're doing all of this, not in a vacuum, but we're doing all of this together, it changes us. It totally changes us. And this is why, listen, you you come to church and you see people who have been transformed. You see people who have been set free. You see people who are lost as a rock. And now they are grounded and now they are people of wisdom. And see, when you realize that we gather for worship, we gather for the teaching of the word, we're really gathering because we're part of a family and that's how God changes us. So if you're not aware, we're in the 13th message of a series that uh, we're calling Old School, and we've been studying these two books in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy, and they kind of work together as a pair. And uh, they're written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. And to give you some background uh, so you understand, if you weren't here, just to catch up to speed, and it's been a couple of weeks because of Christmas and New Year's and all that, and you're like, we were studying that? I know you can forget sometimes, but First Timothy is really about how the church should operate in a culture that's gone crazy. 2 Timothy is a little bit different. 2 Timothy is more internally focused. The content and tone of the letter is much heavier because Paul is sharing what scholars call uh, his last will and testament. 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter shortly after this letter. He wrote it from prison. Shortly after that, um, he was executed in Rome 
for uh, being a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And so he's writing to Timothy, who was pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, second only to the city of Rome itself. And there was a lot of confusion at that time about, and as there is in our culture, about what's true and right and good. But Paul's words were old school in the sense that they were like latitude and longitude, and that you can chart the course of your life by them. And it's about, listen, and the thing that I, I think is so amazing, Second Timothy uh, encourages us, challenges us, and equips us to have a faith that can withstand anything. And so what Paul does is he writes these final words to Timothy. The reason why we've been taking it so slow is because none of these words are wasted. And that Paul has uh, shared in the last message that we talked about, which was just before Christmas, he talked about that there was two types of vessels in a large house. There's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And he, he, you know, vessels of honor might be your favorite chair that, that you sit on or something very special in your house. A vessel of dishonor would be like your plunger um, or your toilet, right? Still needed, but once again, not something that you would put on prominent display. And so what he does is that Paul says, listen, you can decide to be, you can be a vessel of dishonor, but if you want to be a vessel of honor, there's some certain things that you want to change and some things that you want to embrace and some things that you want to let go of if you want to be a vessel of honor. And once again, for us, as we go into a new year, this is, uh, it, it's so important because all of us have things in our lives that we want to see change. And that's why the text that we're going to look at is a perfect backdrop because Paul is going to show us uh, what to do if we want to be the vessel of honor that he had discussed Uh, previously, because all of us want to do better. We all want this year to be better than the last one. We want to be wiser. We want to walk with God more faithfully. There's a whole bunch of other things that we want to see happen, and there's a way for this to happen that Paul's going to outline for us, and we're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 2, where he says this. He says, uh, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And if you pause there and give me your attention, the first thing that I want you to understand that Paul's going to talk about here when it comes to change is that change at its core is an exchange. One of the things that we, when we think about changing things, right, it's a new year and then there's things that we're going to, I'm going to do this differently and I'm going to do, I'm going to change that, I'm going to do this. And some of the things that we do is we think about it in terms of things that I'm going to add into my life. But once again, that's only partially what needs to happen. At its core, change is about exchanging one thing for another. It's exchanging a bad habit for a good habit. And what Paul, and if you watch what Paul is saying, he says, I want you to flee youthful lust, but he's not talking about running aimlessly. He says, I want you to run from that to something else. So flee youthful lust, but then pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, once again, um, by the way, the, the word lust there is a little bit of a challenging word because in our culture, when we th- hear the word lust, we initially uh, associate it with misplaced sexual desire. And that's not necessarily, that's part of it, but not all of it. The Greek word for lust is this word epithumia, and it literally means an over-desire or desire that's out of control. And that could be true for just about anything. Because once again, there's nothing wrong with desire. 
God created desire, God created our appetites, but sin comes into the world and begins to twist them in us. And then when desire is out of control, it's as powerful as lust and can lead us astray. And so Paul says to not just run away from youthful lust, uh, but which by the way doesn't mean just, you know, like, well, I'm not young, so I don't have to worry about that. No, youthful lust uh, might not be, you could be 60, 70, 80 years old still dealing with that. Um, but and, and the reason we often struggle is because we aren't really fleeing those things. A couple of weeks ago, I came home with donuts, and uh, my, my, my wife said, Bob, why are you bringing donuts into our home when all of us, including you, are, are trying to eat healthier? And I said, I know, Care, but listen, I prayed. And I said, Lord, if it's your will that I stop and get donuts, let the front spot of the donut shop, the, the front parking spot, let it be open. And I said, and honey, when I circled the block that seventh time, uh, it was, it was, <laughs> it was, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, but the point is this, is that sometimes it's, yo, I'm fleeing youthful lust. Yeah, but sometimes we're leaving a forwarding address. And, and, and listen, the only way that we flee youthful lust is to embrace change. And that means not just running away from something, but running towards something else. That's why Paul says flee, but also pursue righteousness, which is doing the right things. Faith, which is believing the right things. Love, or literally charity, which is caring about the right things. And peace with those who call on the Lord, that is being with the right people. Because listen, if you want to see God transform an area of your life, this is absolutely the key. You don't just want to say, I'm going to run away when temptation comes. You want to run towards something else. And the wisest among us are those who are not just going to run away from youthful lust, but they're going to run towards those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. They're going to run towards the people of God. And the people who run to the people of God are always going to experience change faster. And it's going to be a real change that is sustained. Why? Because they're around people that are going to help them in the change that they're seeking to make. And then Paul goes uh, kind of a little bit deeper in this, and he says, so flee youthful lust. And then he says in verse 23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Second thing I want you to know about change is that not only is change at its core an exchange, but the, fir- the second thing is, is that change involves different inputs. Change means I... who. I change who is speaking into my life and who I get counsel from. What I love about this passage is when he says uh, in, in, in verse 23, he says, just avoid it, that you and I have the ability to stop the drama. Because he says you can avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. And that word, I love that word foolish. It's the Greek word moros, where we get the English word moron. And so if you've ever had a conversation with a moron, this is exactly who Paul is talking about. And, uh, but he says, avoid it. And, and, and once again, not to go too heavy on original language, but it, this, the, the word avoid is this word paratomai, where uh, para, where we get our word parallel. So that is the, the conflict. It's like it shows up right next to you and you just decide to walk away from it. And that, that's the picture that it's giving us. You just leave it alone. Why? Because it's a dumb argument. And you know the way that dumb arguments end, and it's just not worth having because the person who wants to have the real argument isn't interested in a real answer. They're just interested in having a fight. And and here's the thing that we need to learn. Not everything is worth fighting over. Listen, if you want to be happily married, 
then here's my advice to you. Not everything is worth fighting over. I mean, there's just things you got to let go. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to let something go. Now, I'll tell you this. Next month, my wife and I are celebrating 25 years of holy matrimony. And uh, yeah, we're very excited about that. And that's really more of a testament to her than it is to me. And, uh, but uh, m- my wife and I don't argue that much. We really don't. But eight years ago, something came into our lives that became a lightning rod in our relationship. It was an elliptical machine. And my wife and I could not agree as to where to put this elliptical machine. And I wanted it in the garage, and she wanted it in our bedroom. And so I laid all the reasons out as to why the elliptical machine only made sense in the garage, and she disagreed and said, you know, but we just need to put it in. And, and she had her reasons as to why they, uh, it needed to be in the bedroom. And so after we first got it, my dad comes over to our house, and I want to show him a picture of our kids that we had just put up. I say, hey, come into the bedroom. I'm going to show you a picture that we framed. And uh, he comes in, and he says, hey, I didn't know that you had an elliptical machine. And I said, yeah, it watches over us as we sleep at night. And uh, see, not good. That's not good. Can't. And you're like, wow, that's so witty and charming and smart and um, wildly sarcastic. And uh, that's, that's no good. That's no good. And so anyway, but... Um, and so once again, if Carrie and I, for years, if Carrie and I hadn't been in an argument for a while and someone just said the word elliptical machine, it was on. And, and I'm telling you, and, and you might think, now, Pastor Bob, aren't you talking about an elliptical machine right now? Yes, I am. And is that going to be problematic? Yes, it is. <laughs> but I'm taking one for the team for you to prove this point. But no, actually, we moved recently. And it was amazing, and, and I think it's just a testament to people growing, mostly me, and because uh, and, and now I'd be like, hey, I don't care, where do you want it? We can put it in the bedroom, we can put it here, and she's like, no, nah, let's go ahead and put it in the garage, and I'm like, are you sure you want to put it in the garage? Because we can put it in the, in the room if you want, I mean, I, I'm used to it now, uh, I might feel weird if it's not there, and, uh, and, and so she's like, no, nah, let's put it in the garage. So anyway, now it's in the garage, but I can't push it, or it will end up in our room, and I will end up in the garage, and uh, I'm not excited about that. But listen, honestly, you will live a much happier life if you will let dumb stuff go. Uh, and, and listen, you know this because you know people in your family. I have people in my family who haven't spoken in years and they don't even remember what the initial argument was about. And that's totally insane. And so if you want changes in your relationships, then here's what needs to happen. There's some internal change that needs to happen by way of wisdom where we decide that we're just going to let certain things go. And that doesn't mean that it's like, oh, will they say anything and I'm just afraid to answer or I let people walk all over me. Paul's going to discuss that in just a moment. The proactive side of this, um, not the avoidance side, but the proactive side. But sometimes we got to just let certain things go. And we've got to be wise enough to know the difference between someone that's going through a difficult time and someone who's just toxic. And the reason, the difference is, someone who's going through a difficult time, that is the exception. The dumb stuff is more the exception than the rule. And the person who's toxic, that's, they have like moments where they're good and then the rest of it is, is pretty rough. But there's two, every time that I get into in a situation like this and someone wants to start an argument, there's two questions I ask. And they're not in your notes, but you should probably jot them down because they might help you at some point in life. But two questions that I ask, and that is someone's being argumentative, and I'll say, will anything I say change your mind? 
And if they respond with something like, no, because I'm right, well, then why are we even having this conversation? There's no point because we're not really exchanging ideas. And then the second one is really my favorite one and their least favorite one. And that is, I'll ask the question, whatever it is they're talking about, how's that working out for you? And the, cha- the thing they don't like I- about that is because argumentative people are generally miserable. Uh, they're very unhappy. And so when I say, hey, how's that worldview, that teaching, that idea, that philosophy, that whatever, how's that working out for you? They get upset that, I've, that you know, we've called their bluff because they aren't happy. And the only thing that makes them slightly brings them any joy in their lives to see people as miserable as they are. And that's why it bugs me to no end when someone is miserable and calls themselves a Christian. And here's why, because one of the marks of being a Christian is joy. I mean, think about it. When Paul writes the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, the first one is love. The second one is joy. That your life, if you're a Christian, should be marked by joy. But some people, I mean, they, they say they love Jesus, but they look like they've been baptized in lemon juice. Because, I mean, they're like, you know, praise the Lord. You know, and it's like, oh, you're a Christian. You should let your face know. Um, and I'm telling you this because I am not a naturally smiley person. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit introverted, so I kind of live my life in my head a bit. I'm always thinking about stuff. So uh, I, I, I will... Um, naturally just have, you know, whatever, kind of a normal face. Some other people, you know, and I just think people that walk around like that just look totally insane. And so, but what happens is, and I remember this early on, and my wife was, was so good coaching me in this, because when, when we had first uh, started uh, the church, we were about three or four years in, and I was teaching on Wednesday night, I was teaching the book of Revelation, and so I was teaching Revelation, and, you know, we're talking about the judgment of God and all this stuff happening, and, man, I was really going for it. And, and after one of the messages, my wife said to me, she's like, Bob, this, the message was so good, but um, do you know that the people here at Calvary are not the people in Revelation? Like, you know, the, the, the people that you're preaching to tonight, they don't love the devil. Uh, they haven't aligned themselves with the Antichrist. And uh, so maybe don't talk to them like they are. And, uh, and I was just, cause I was just going, I'm like, you know, and then I was like, and so I kid you not. And if you can see this, uh, I have a file of all my notes and in my revelation notes, if you look at them, almost all the messages, there's the one night that we had the conversation, all the rest of them at the very top, uh, just have the words. I just wrote out the word smile and it's just, so I'd be like, Hey, how you doing? Let's talk about the judgment of God. You know what I mean? And it's just, and I'm telling you, it was, it is, it, it, it really changed my demeanor. And then, you know, I go everywhere and uh, I run into Calvary people all the time. And so sometimes I see people looking at me and, and I'm like, are they looking at me because they, they recognize me uh, or are they, you know, whatever, they, they look at me for whatever other reason. And so now I just kind of have like that, that, like, so I'm walking, if you see me at Publix, I'll, I'll be like, I look like one of those insane people um, walking around. And and listen, but my my point is this, is that I think one of the marks of your life should be joy. You should have a lot of joy in your life because you know Jesus and you're walking with him. And not, listen, because not just he's, he's forgiven you, we get that, and he's been gracious to you and we get that. But all those things, listen, because following him is the best possible way to live. 
Listen, I'm going to give you three places, and there's a whole bunch, but just so you don't think I just pulled one verse out, I'll give you three, and you can hunt down the rest of them, where the New Testament teaches us about having joy. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. That's one. One chapter later, Jesus says, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. One of the disciples of Jesus, John, he writes one of his letters and he says this, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. My friends, if we call ourselves Christians and we have no joy, we're doing it wrong. We really are. We should be the most joyous people on the planet. And and listen, sometimes if we're like, well, it's just the world stinks and, and whatever, well, uh, maybe, but, but it's, uh, it, it may, maybe, maybe it's us. You know, uh, a while, this is uh, a while back, uh, my wife was out and I had one of my kids with me. And my, one of the one was really young. I can't tell you which one because my kids are at an age now where they want a say in what stories I tell about them. And so then I'll say, well, you know, hey, I'm going to tell this. Oh, I'd prefer you didn't tell that story. And then I'll say, like, how about I give you three bucks? And they're like, you know what you could add to that story was the other part? And so anyway, but if I don't mention their name, um, it's royalty free. And so anyway, I'm not going to tell you their name, so I'm trying to save a few bucks this week. So anyway, I was with one of my children, and one of my children at that time was about 18 months old. We were watching a Red Sox game together, and the child um, used the bathroom in their diaper. And it was, I mean, like a bomb had gone off. And so I took the child to the changing table, and, and it, it was leaking through the diaper. And if you're a parent, you understand, you've had these moments. It's leaking through the diaper, diaper down to their socks. And, um, and, and so, anyway, it was such a nasty business. There was so much screaming and crying, and the child was also upset. Um, and so, anyway, <laughs> some of you are just getting that. Welcome to church. Uh, so anyway, so I take the diaper off and then the, the child puts the contents of the diaper in their hands and then starts rubbing it on my arms. And that's when I almost passed out. And then I just started saying like, you know, if you remember, if you're as old as I am, you remember those Calgon commercials where the, the mom at the end is like, Calgon, take me away. And I never understood that commercial until that moment. Because I was like, Calgon, somebody, take me away. I, 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 what is this? So I didn't know what to do. But I just kept, the only thing I kept saying was, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. So anyway, I put the child in the tub, give them a bath. I wash my arms in the process. And then we had to go to Publix. And so we're in the car driving to Publix. I'm like, and I can't smell. I have a terrible sense of smell. And uh, my nose exists to hold up my glasses. That's it. It serves no other purpose. And so I, and I'm like, this car stinks of poop. And, uh, and, and, and once again, I know the child doesn't. This child, that, that child was clean top to bottom. And so with fresh clothes and, uh, and I had washed my arms and whatever else. And, and so now, and so I, I, and I'm like, man, maybe it's just my car smells. And then I get to the public's parking lot and I put the child in the car and I'm like, dude, this parking lot stinks. It just reeks of butt and, uh, and the, you know, whatever. And, and so, and I just, I can't deal with it. I walk into Publix and I'm like, man, 
And then I'm going down the aisle, and I'm like, this Publix stinks of poop. I can't even deal with it. And I'm, and I, cause I'm like looking around, what in the world? And then I realize that I had poop all over my shirt that I did not even realize until that moment. And that's when I started screaming. And, uh, and, so, and so once again, sometimes, sometimes people are like, you know, life stinks, the world stinks. Maybe you stink. And so, and, and here's the point, is that, you know, you don't have to blame God or your circumstances. You don't have to blame the government. Well, you can blame the government sometimes. And uh, you can do all of that. But listen, sometimes just realize that there, if there's some changes that I make, maybe the world won't stink so bad. Um, why? Because, and the truth is, no matter the circumstance, we can have joy. You know why? Because God's for you. No matter what's happening, he's for you. And then lastly, look at what he says in verse 24. He says this. He says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken by him to do his will. And if you pause there, Give me your attention. Last thing I want to tell you is that change is about intentional decisions. I want you to notice something that uh, Paul is charging us not to be quarrelsome or literally a person who starts fights. The very thing he said, avoid argumentative people. Now he's saying, don't be one of those argumentative people. And instead of being argumentative, he challenges us to have four characteristics that we just looked at. Gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So let me give you these four. Number one, gentle to all. Number one, if you're a note taker, be kind to people. Uh, the, the translation of gentle could literally be uh, kindness. The problem is, is that kindness is such a vanilla word in our culture. I, I've, I've never heard anybody say, like, I just want to be a kinder person. That's like, because we equate it to being polite. Like, I want to say, please, thank you, and recycle so that I can be kind. And but it's so much bigger than that, so much deeper than that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul gives this wonderful chapter about love, he says this, that love suffers long and is kind. Listen, according to the Bible, kindness is an indispensable quality that we need. Uh, literally, 1 Corinthians 13:4 that we just read could be translated that love acts benevolently because kindness has action built into it. It's doing acts of kindness that express love because kindness has it's rooted in this idea of the word usefulness that is it picks the right word at the right time to speak life into someone now if you're not aware proverbs 31 is this wonderful chapter in the old testament about the ideal woman and it's just incredible what this woman accomplishes over the course of her life but there's this one passage that i love in verse 26 it says she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. You see, kindness is about finding the right word that brings the right outcome, but it isn't just any word. It's the law of kindness, and that word law uh, in Hebrew is the word Torah, which refers to the first five books of Moses. And, and once again, which means 
that we use God's word to speak words of life and encourage people. See, that's how you combat the argumentativeness. That's how you combat the quarreling is by speaking kind words that speak life and wisdom into other people. The second one, as he says, not just uh, gentle or kind to all, able to teach. So if number one, we're kind to people, then number two, be informed for people. Able to teach doesn't simply mean you're blasting people with information. That's not helpful. Teaching means you start where people are and lead them to the place where you're seeking to take them. And that takes care and a level of wisdom to do that. And here's how you know someone has the gift of teaching is that when you're having a conversation and they say, oh, I didn't, the the person says, oh, I don't know anything about that. And they're like, I can't believe you didn't know about that. That's not a person with the gift of teaching. A person with the gift of teaching and you're having a conversation and they're like, oh, I don't know about that. They're like, for real? Like that, that's, that's how you know, like someone get, a person with a teaching gift is excited to be able to share what it is they've learned. So we had some friends over a couple of weeks ago, we're sitting around the table and um, one of my friends is asking me a question about Bible translations. And so they're like, yeah, but this, and it was kind of the deeper question than just what Bible translation do you use, which is New King James, by the way. And, uh, but they asked, so I said, okay. If you want to go into this, we can. But I need to ask you a question. Do you know anything about papyrus or codexes or word-for-word translation versus dynamic equivalent? And they said, I don't even know what those words means. And I'm like, okay, we're about to have a good time. And, uh, and that's just why. Because that's what a person with the, um, with the heart of a teacher wants to teach. They want to share what it is that, that they've learned. And the point is this. Sometimes the things that we learn and that we study are not simply for us. Sometimes the things that we learn and study are for the point of sharing them with others. And then the third one is this. He says, be gentle or kind to all, able to teach. And the third is patient. The third is this, move at their speed. In our culture, we think of patience as waiting, and that makes sense. But that's only part of what the Bible is talking about. That's why the old English word uh, is, is so much better than just patience. The, the old English word for patience is long-suffering. I love that, right? Because if you've ever been to the DMV, you didn't wait, you long-suffered, right? And that's what makes it, that, that, uh, that's why it's so superior. But patience in the biblical sense means this, that it's not just that we had to wait for a while, but that there was uh, some endurance that had to happen, that there was maybe even some pain that had to take place where we say, patience says, when I should have thrown in the towel, I didn't, and I was still here. And, and that means that, listen, we don't give up on people. Now, sometimes you got to separate from people, but we don't write people off. Why? Because we have a Savior who never gave up on us. And that's how ultimately you win people over. Not by engaging in their knucklehead arguments, but instead by kindness, by teaching, by patience. You win them over by saying, I'm not giving up on you. And there might be some patient enduring that has to happen for the relationship to be what it needs to be. And then the last one is when he says uh, in, at the end of verse, 24, uh, verse 25, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. The last one is this, keep your cool in conflict. The translation says humility, but it could be better translated in meekness. The reason why it wasn't translated meekness is nobody knows what the word meekness means. And so we just kind of think that meek means weak, and and that's, that's not what it means. Meekness means someone who has power, 
but that the power is under control. And the, culturally, the idea was like a wild stallion that once was out of control, but now has been tamed. The, the horse now still possesses great power, but it's being channeled in a productive way. And in, the, in your relationships, listen, the way that we win in relationships isn't by flexing our power or knowledge. Instead, it's not by being argumentative. It's by being kind. It's by instructing people. It's by patiently enduring and having self-control. And here's the thing that I've learned is that people sometimes will act as ungodly as they want to. And the minute that you lose control one time, the, the minute that you say the wrong thing one time, they will now look at that as their reason. That well, it justifies all of my bad behavior. And, and, it, it, and you say, well, isn't that unfair? Of course it's unfair, but we're not trying to call balls and strikes here. We're trying to win the relationship. And the only way to win the relationship is to be that person. And the good news is this is that we aren't alone in this. When Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he opens and he starts talking about the Beatitudes, these counterintuitive ideas on how to live God's way. In verse 5 of Matthew chapter 5, he says this, is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now understand this, they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. That is not the way the world worked at that time, and it's not the way the world works today. Being meek, It's not the way you gain power. It's not the way you take everything that you want because nobody else is looking out for you to get what it is that you're seeking. And But see, the people of God understand something different. That we don't actually have to flex our muscles and we don't have to treat people a certain way and we we don't have to do any of that. You know why? Because when you are meek, that is have self-control and realize that God is for you. That's why the key word in that passage is that they will inherit the earth. You don't have to do anything. It's really about who God is creating you to be. And if you can be the person that God wants you to be, then you don't have to strive for it and fight for it. Instead, you inherit it. And how do you inherit something? You inherit something via relationship. And see... When, when we really grab hold of this, I'm telling you, it changes everything. That we decide that we will trust God and conduct ourselves in a way that he wants us to live. We will receive more and experience greater blessing than we ever thought we would experience by trying to muscle it ourselves. Instead, we inherit everything by nature of who we belong to. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that, that great promise that those who are meek, who have power, but have it under control, will inherit the earth. And God, we know for all of us, this year is a year that we want to see change and transformation, and we want to see bad habits become good habits, and we want to see broken relationships mended, and we want to see things be better than they were. God, help us to know in all the things that we want to do, God, remind us of the person that you want us to be. And if we can get that right, we know this, that we will inherit everything that we need that you've ordained for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. 
And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.